The Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. Pete Crosby is the chair of the Manchester Revenue Collective. He's also founding member at the London Revenue Collective and a non-exec at Cluster, which is a revenue analytics platform. Um, he's previously led revenue growth at Ometria and uh, Triptease, two successful B2B SaaS scale-ups. And he drove uh, commercial operations at Viadio, all the way from Series A to IPO. So Pete, welcome to the Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan. Thanks for having me, Guy. Hi, nice to meet you. Hey, you've been on quite a journey through startups, scale-ups, and IPOs. And now you've settled down in North Wales and focused on advisory and consulting roles and also the Revenue Collective. I'd love to hear more about your decision to move away from the obvious tech startup hubs like London or Cambridge and settle in, in North Wales. Well, I've been in North Wales since I was 18, pretty much. I just took a decision from a quite an early age that I wanted to stay here. This is where my children, my two eldest children were brought up as Welsh speakers. My wife is Welsh. I went to university in North Wales. So with the odd exception of living in uh, London for a year, which we hated, and living in Boston for a year in the US, which we loved, I've just commuted everywhere, including 18 months where I commuted every week to China. So uh, I'm kind of a seasoned get on the train, get on the plane, go do it. And uh, I just like coming back to the hills. So uh, I get the best of the city and I get the best of the countryside, I think. To answer the other bit of your question, I didn't really make any decision to do advising and consulting. I'm kind of not even sure I like consultants or, <laughs> or, or never thought that I did until I experienced it for myself. Back in January, I decided that I was going to quit my role at Ametria. And the reason for that was not because of the job. You know, in fact, uh, it's one of the most fun roles I've ever had with a brilliant team. But my eldest daughter, who's 19, and been sick ever since she was born, we just decided now was a good time to spend some time together because she wasn't getting any better any quicker. And I'd actually told Ivan, the Ametria CEO, about that right from the very, very beginning. So that meant that uh, we were able to prepare the team, scale the team in the right way, make sure that when I departed, there wasn't going to be any uh, any drop-off in performance or anything like that. Uh, so in January, I did that. And the goal was just to spend 2020 at home. But guess what? Turns out that 19-year-old girls don't particularly want to spend their entire life hanging around with their father. And I'm completely addicted to revenue. I just I started, I found that I was spending my days like, building massive sales velocity calculators and building uh, unit economic calculators, and I'm just a bit of a nerd. So when people approached me and said, do you want to chat to us? So I've said yes to a few people, and now I have got a bunch of customers, but I'm, I don't really like to talk about it. I don't promote it. I don't put it on LinkedIn. I don't really speak about it very much because I'm quite picky, and I just work with the ones I want to, and it's a lot of fun. It's almost like it's like joining a new startup every couple of weeks because I really emotionally invest in the people that I work with. And so I get really involved, really engaged. I end up doing way more work than I probably ought to, but uh, it's just really a lot of fun. And uh, I think I would recommend it as well because what I've noticed is that the frameworks that I've built, the philosophies I have about revenue and growth and the way that I've thought about it 
has been uh, pressure tested every couple of weeks because now you're doing it with a fintech and now you're doing it with an early stage startup that's pre-revenue. Now you're doing it with you know a high-flying um, AI organization that's just raised their C round. And when you start to pressure test all of your frameworks like that, you're forced to acknowledge that they're not quite as universal as you hoped they were. And so you shift them and adapt them and make them better. And as long as you approach it like that, it's become a really useful kind of trial by fire for me to pressure test everything that I'm doing. So I'm having a lot of fun, um, but I'm having all that fun from from North Wales, which means I can uh, get off the call to you later, Gary, get outside in the fields, take the bizzler for a walk and, uh, and not see another human being for the next couple of hours. There's plenty of talk, Pete, these days about diversity in the tech sector. I know you've got some quite strong views about tackling the lack of diversity in tech. So what actions do tech business leaders and investors need to take? We put on an offsite last week that I uh, put on with um, two friends, Tom Grasson and Andre Bressel. In itself, three white male leaders putting this on. So what we did is we put an advisory board together and we invited people from various um, diverse groups to join us. So we had uh, black women, we had people representing LGBTQ+, we had people representing neurodiversity and people representing disability. We even have people representing age, which is often often unspoken bias that people are against, bizarrely, given how much like, wisdom and knowledge people should accumulate as they get older, yet not very fashionable. So we put this group together and, and they, their advice was pick a lane. If you're going to put an event on, then you know if it is about the broad spectrum of diversity, maybe you won't achieve so much. So the lane we picked was Black Lives Matter, and uh, we got probably the most influential black female leaders in the country to do the keynotes. So Yatunde Hoffman, Dr. Shaila Mosshogbamamu, and uh, Yomi Adegoke, all three of them authors, uh, public speakers, and the purpose of the event was to say you can act now, here's a playbook for doing it. So in a week or two, we're going to be publishing the unbiased playbook. And this will be something that we can give directly to revenue leaders, but CEOs, founders, and it is a guide based on the day. So this is how you go doing, go about doing this stuff. This is how you affect lasting change. This is how you do things that are much greater than a black square on your LinkedIn profile, oh, well done, or, you know, the hashtag Black Lives Matter during Black History Month. And not that these things aren't useful, but they're very, very small elements. Lasting change is about really committing to this. You know, there are there are really two imperatives at play here. The first is a moral imperative, and the second is a financial imperative. And both of these point in the same direction. You're morally, you know, unless you're a complete nutcase, you kind of appreciate that it's the right thing to do that your company should reflect the society in which you live. And from a financial point of view, we know that companies uh, which are diverse grow at a 45% greater rate than companies which are not. So you're a bit of an idiot if you're not paying attention to this. So then you need to pump prime it because you can't just make it happen. You want a black woman walking through the door for an interview to see other black women. So if you haven't got other black women, you need to kind of do something about that. You need to pump prime it early on so that people want to come and work for you. And there are loads of things in the playbook that will just help people to be talked through the way to affect real lasting change, which is our goal. Could you give me a sneak preview, Pete, 
of one or two of the key ideas in the unbiased uh, report that uh, that companies can adopt and implement really quickly, really easy, really easily to make a difference. Yeah. So we had an entire panel on how to hire for diversity. We all know that we all have bias, but we're really, really bad at understanding how to deal with that bias. You know, we know that if you receive a CV from a woman called Jane and we was, you receive an identical CV from a woman called Shanice, the woman called Shanice won't get invited for the interview. The woman called Jane will. And this is probably just a junior talent manager who's screening the CVs. And uh, he or she has no idea why they have rejected the Shanice CV and accepted the Jane CV. So there is just some training and understanding of doing this. How do we go through this so that we get the right people through the door and we interview them? Most of us, if we interview a black woman and a white woman, will probably treat those people fairly. But how many black women do you actually interview? So let's get people through the door in the first place so that you get that opportunity. Good. Okay. That's a really important initiative, and I, I look forward to uh, reading the outputs when, uh, when it's published. And when we last chatted, you mentioned your concerns about the way tech ventures struggle to recruit sales and commercial leaders with real staying power. So what do CEOs and leadership teams need to do differently to hire and retain better sales leaders? This is uh, the kind of question that we could talk about all day. I'm not even sure that I would phrase the question in that way. I think that founders are educated by VCs and by well-meaning but sometimes stupid books that you hire someone for like 18 months and then you get rid of them. There's even a line in the new Jason Lemkin book about stepping over the carcass of the old VP sales. Like, disgusting. I mean, sometimes it is right, of course, to move on uh, at someone who is not succeeding. But my experience of going into organizations is that when sales are not happening as they expect, they look at the symptom and not the cause. And the symptom is, oh, we didn't meet our target. We better fire the sales leader because he doesn't know what he's doing or she doesn't know what she's doing which is a little bit like Premier League football clubs. You, know, you lose two games and you fire the manager, but you, know, you probably end up still getting relegated because there's some kind of systemic problem going on in the organization. So when I go into those organizations and they say they've got a sales problem, you know, I just ask a few questions around their go-to-market, around their ICP, around you know, the, the way that they are structuring their product market fit. And frequently you find that those things even if they were thought through originally, because all founders know that they need to do these things, frequently they've lost the focus. And that means the problem isn't really a sales problem at all. The problem is really a problem of product and of positioning. And the sales leader themselves does bear some responsibility. As sales leaders, we need to stop being tactical sales managers and become much more strategic. The challenge is that most sales managers, most VPs of sales, they were the best or one of the best salespeople. So then they got promoted to be a manager. And guess what? They're quite nice people and they were reasonably good at distributing their knowledge. So people liked working for them. So then they wanted to get promoted and the company didn't want to leave them, lose them. So now they're the VP of sales and suddenly the job is shifted. Now this is not about being pretty good at sales and not bad at managing. 
This is now about being a strategic leader of an organization that is trying to imagine what the world is going to be like in five years, shape a product and a strategy to uh, to attack that and do it against competition from some of the greatest brains in the world. You're not equipped to do that. So you end up with this two-pronged challenge, which is founders don't understand what their problem is. Sales leaders don't understand what the challenge is and with inevitable consequences. And that, I think, is why sales leaders end up getting the boot. But guess what happens to the founder then? They get another one and they often go through the same process again. So getting that right, in my view, is critical to making sure that you achieve your goal, which is typically we want to move toward unicorn status. We want to grow. We want to IPO. We want to make a sale. To get there, you've got to get this right. And that's what so many organizations get so wrong. So how do you get the CEOs to correctly diagnose the underlying problem? How do I get them to do it? Yeah, or how could they do it even without your direct input? Clearly, that you're going in and you're seeing that they're missing some of the underlying issues and they're laying the blame time and again at the head of sales. So it's, let's go out and find a new head of sales. But they're missing other things. What is it they need to do more effectively to stop, to stop this knee-jerk reaction of, okay, let's go and fire the sales leader? Yeah, well, I think the answer is about picking the right person and understanding how to do job design effectively so that you hire the right person. Do you need a VP of sales? Do you understand what a VP of sales is? Or do you need a chief revenue officer? And do you understand what one of those is? There's just this big misunderstanding of what you're getting, the difference between the tactical leadership that you need from a VP of sales and the strategic leadership that you need from COO. Which one do you want? And then what stage are you at anyway? What kind do you want? If you're the post-series C, you probably need someone who is able to communicate well with investors, who is able to understand the dashboards that need to be led, is able to lead leaders, and it has the experience of taking you through toward IPO. But sometimes you need a wartime sales leader. You need someone who is able to take control of a really difficult situation against the odds and make that work. Other times you need a, a player manager. If you have a player manager, that person is going to have to do some selling themselves. So an IPO type C-level leader can't do that. So ask yourself what you really, really need. Okay, Pete, well, it's been fun having you um, on the show with your forthright views. Thank you for joining me today. And uh, thanks for your candid insights. You're welcome. I'm not sure if forthright views is a compliment or not, but I'll take it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show, Guy. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.